Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Roden Fellows Podcast. I am your host, Ashton Edmonds, a senior journalism student at Clark Atlanta University, and along with me today are two esteemed Roden Fellows, Jayla and Parker. Fellows, if you will, introduce yourselves. Hi, everybody. My name is Jayla Jones, and I am a senior at Prairie View A&M University. Hi, everybody. I am Parker Owens. I am a senior at Morehouse College. And with us today is a very special guest, veteran sports writer, journalist, author, and contributor to The Undefeated, Mr. David Steele. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? I am great. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Definitely, definitely. Well, we actually have a lot to get through today, so let's jump right in. As we all know, the College Football National Championship just ended. HBC football returns next month to start their spring season. Originally, HBCUs canceled their fall seasons due to the pandemic, but it's looking like the spring season could potentially be canceled as well, with COVID-19 continuing to surge. The SIEC, CIAA, FAMU, and Bethune-Cookman have already canceled their seasons, and I saw MEAC Commissioner Dennis Thomas mention, at any point we feel that it's not safe, we will shut it down. We're going to start with you, Mr. Steele. As one with knowledge concerning this situation, and HBC football and COVID, do you feel as though they should continue with their seasons or cancel it altogether? Yeah, I personally believe they should cancel it. I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Power Five, you know, major college programs going ahead through the course of the season, getting all the way to a national championship game. And that bothered me a lot because it felt like there was a lot of casualties along the way with the number of people, number of players who were forced to sit out, the number of games that were canceled. I was very, very happy to see this the fall season in all the uh, HBCU conferences uh, pushed back. And I really had kind of figured that by the time we got close to the spring, when it was time to play again, that sort of reason would prevail and they would shut it down as well. Um, and they've talked about a lot of safety precautions. You know, I personally don't believe that it's worth it to go through all of it. I think that the other leagues made the right decision and they should probably just put it all to the side, hope that things are better in the fall, and just wipe out the whole 2021 season uh, as a whole. Definitely. Parker, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I actually have a follow-up question. What are the financial implications of canceling the college football season for HBCUs? We know it's not as big of a revenue stream as it is for a lot of the Power Five conferences, but there's still a lot of money tied into HBCU football. There is money tied to it, especially proportionally, just because so much of football uh, ends up feeding the rest of the athletic program. A lot of the schools have, have made cutbacks. They've, uh, in terms of staff, in terms of hours, in terms of payrolls and, and furloughs, layoffs, things like that. So it's not as big a drain right now as it could be. And certainly the amount of money that they're getting from things like TV and sponsorships, things like that, are not as high as what's going on in the other schools. But one thing that was explained to me, and I, I'm, I'm going to give the, these universities the benefit of the doubt on that, that they're not you know, making it up or throwing out fake numbers or anything. They just don't have the, the same size expenses as the big schools do. So the balance sheets are not going to be as bad as they could be if, like we mentioned, Alabama or Ohio State or UCLA or 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 whoever or Clemson had canceled their season you know it's a short-term hit if they get past the, the pandemic next uh, later this year get the vaccinations up and things like that and just play next year it's not going to be anything that devastates these programs or the universities I mean it's it's something that 
short term is is you know it's not as big a risk to them financially, and the balance in lives saved and protected is going to more than uh, counterbalance that. All right, and I brought that up because I know that Morehouse is my school is having partial openings for the spring semester. And we're obviously not part of the group that is coming back because we are a division two school and, you know, other priorities are pushed ahead. But some of the thought behind coming back and only having some students come back is you don't want to put all these students at risk, especially a lot of HBCUs are not closed campuses and they are open to the public. So you're able to interact and based on the communities and the effective rate of the communities that most HBCs are located in, which is predominantly black communities, you don't want to also spread it into the community and further the spread of the virus and get more people sick. That's the logic that pretty much all the schools put forth. I mean, again, the the, the, the larger conferences in the SWAC and the MEAC, and they're for the most part located in cities, like in a lot of cases, the size of, uh, of Atlanta, where you are. They recognize that, but they're not as insulated as, as as the big schools are. You know, the athletes aren't as insulated from the rest of the student population as these other schools are. So if you play a sport of that magnitude, you know, the risk is going to run really high. We're seeing that in basketball right now, where they put in a lot of precautions. They shrunk the season. They, they scheduled so that the, the travel wouldn't be that bad and you know, there wouldn't be that much time spent. They've closed a lot of the gyms. And yet there's so many schools that are playing basketball right now that have had to run through cases of infections and quarantines and contact tracing and things like that. It's almost unavoidable in the big sports. So you really want them to err on the side of caution more than sword saying, yeah, if we have a chance to play, we should go ahead and play. You'd rather just say, you know, let's just, let's just put this whole thing off. Yeah. Jayla, I know you go to a, a bigger uh, HBCU, a D1 school. What's happening at uh, Prairie View A&M right now? So right now, we're gearing up for football season, but we are in full swing for basketball season. Both men and women are playing. I believe we're also about to start volleyball, and I believe bowling has begun as well. When it comes to COVID and playing, I, from the beginning, have been kind of against having the seasons go on you know, whether we push it back or whether, you know, we just postpone certain games. I've never believed that playing in the season while we're in a pandemic is worth it. I've never even thought that professionally they need to be playing, but I do know that's a bigger monster that, you know, maybe we don't really know how to handle yet. But I know for us, we've had to postpone a number of basketball games. I know that it's been a lot to deal with. And especially because we're in a hot spot. So Prairie View is in Texas. We're about 20 minutes out of Houston. Houston is a hot spot. A lot of students travel to and from Houston. I know Atlanta is, I believe it's a hot spot. Parker might not be a hot spot near where you are. But it's like, I think we need to take into account where we're living in the United States. Because, you know, some places are more, you know, active than others. But it turns out that most HBCUs are in active places. And we're the most affected. As black and brown people, we're the most affected. It just doesn't make sense to, you know, have the season go on and have all these games go on. And I understand that a lot of universities, our university in particular, depends on football. I think, you know, the safety of our athletes and of our coaching staffs and the entire athletic department should come first. And I know a a common kind of response is, well, like, oh, you know, they want to play, so what are we supposed to tell them? But it's like, at some point, you kind of got to pull players back and you kind of 
you know, got to save them from themselves in a certain aspect. So I don't know. I don't think it's worth playing. I know a lot of people want to play, but I think we kind of need to step back and, you know, just realize what we're putting on the line here. All right. And my mind automatically goes to a Keontae Johnson, the forward from the University of Florida who collapsed on the court during a basketball game. And that's obviously a sad situation. HBCUs would not be able to handle that PR hit in the same way because there's less of a benefit of doubt and there's more of an attack on the schools wondering what the what the end game is. Keontae Johnson was obviously one of the top players trying to compete for a national championship on a Division One level. And HBCU football, while we know the extreme legacy that it has, we don't have the same kind of gravitas that goes towards it. So a, a lot of media outlets and the media scrutiny on that aren't going to be the same. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I know I was actually talking to the director of media relations uh, from my school this morning. He was at the Hank Aaron statue and he was just saying how, you know, he doesn't know what's, what's happening. He doesn't have any specific dates or he doesn't even know if football is going to be around, if basketball is going to be around. He just doesn't have no clue. He's just kind of playing it by ear and just trying to figure everything out. So, but I definitely agree that these seasons should be canceled. I, I definitely feel like we shouldn't put these college students at risk because it's just not worth it. You know, these students, some of these students, like you said, have underlying health conditions. And with COVID just playing a big factor, I feel like it could really do a lot of damage to these college players. But speaking of football, Deshaun Watson is rumored to lead the Texans. They completed the season 4-12 and overall. And according to Adam Schefter's article, Watson was not happy with the process because he offered input on potential general managers candidates, but the Texans neither considered nor consulted with those endorsed by their franchise quarterback. Fans wanted him to stay and even planned to march on his behalf. Jayla, I actually wanted to start with you on this topic. What do you think about franchise players leaving, and where would you like to see him go if he does decide to leave the Texans? So I've been going back and forth on this topic, mainly because I do understand the role of a franchise player. You know, the organization is basically on your back. You are the face and the future of the team. And I can understand why fans wouldn't want you to leave. Of course, you know, you get attached and you never want to see a player of Deshaun Watson's caliber leave your team. And then there's also a sense of loyalty that goes into not wanting to leave an organization where you've laid down so many roots. But at the same time, I think players, franchise or not, should always take their career into account and they should always be able to put that first if you're not happy then by all means I say move on and find something that's better suited for you you know there was a tweet by Andre Johnson who was a former Texans player basically saying that the Houston Texans are an organization known for wasting players careers and then DeAndre Hopkins who is a big name and another former Texas player co-signed it. So if you have players speaking out and agreeing with one another, then that alone should show you what type of environment he's in. So overall, I say if you're on a team that's not putting you in a position to win, if they're not putting you in a position where you can improve and propel your career to the next level, then it's time you move on. And he has every right to do that. Definitely. Mr. Still, I actually wanted to hear, you know, your thoughts on this whole situation with Deshaun Watson. I think Sam did a great job of encapsulizing it. We're, we're at a point, and it's really fascinating that this has happened at this time, where players are just sort of now realizing on a broad basis how much power and influence and leverage they have. I think a, a few players here and there in the, in the different sports have noticed it and recognized it and taken advantage of it, but there are more now across the board than ever. And in the case where you've got a franchise quarterback 
where somebody who, as you said, the, the future of the franchise is resting on their shoulders. I mean, he's still young. Uh, they just paid him a lot of money. There's been postseason success. He's clearly the player that they're banking their future on. He understands that, and he's doing something that could take him in a different direction, but also take the team, the franchise, in a different direction. And the franchise doesn't seem to be recognizing that. You look at other situations. You look at the Aaron Rodgers and the Tom Brady's and the Ben Roethlisberger's, and you could just go down the line of, of white quarterbacks over the years, over the history of that sport. And you know how engaged they've been in the highest levels of, of conversation about what direction the franchise is going to go in. For the Texans to exclude Deshaun Watson from that sends a message. I don't think they even understand what that yeah. message is right now. You know, yeah. they, you know, they seem to just think, oh, it's another player griping. And the last time they had to deal with that is, is when they traded DeAndre Hopkins. And they saw the devastating effect that had. And they might as well trade them. And they better just be happy with what they can get for them because they put themselves in that situation. And Deshaun has put himself and the organization in that position. He needs to be able to go where he wants and not worry about possibly what the franchise is going to get back from because they started that and he should be in the one in position to finish it. Right. And to make Deshaun Watson's uh, case stronger, he does have a no trade clause. So he's able to approve whatever deal and whatever team that he's going to go to. Part of Adam Schefter's reporting and other reporting has been that the Miami Dolphins are a team that interests him. Obviously, the Dolphins had a 10-win season this year, and I might be a little bit biased being from South Florida, but I would love to see Deshaun rocking the orange and teal, especially after the year that he had and the draft capital that the Dolphins have. They're able to get that done. The draft capital, by the way, that comes from the Houston Texans, who gave it to the Dolphins in order to acquire Laramie Tunsil to help out Deshaun's left side on the offensive line. Obviously, player empowerment is important here. We've never seen a franchise quarterback of this caliber demand a trade, though. This is a very unprecedented situation. And Jay Cutler got traded when he was the franchise star over in Denver. And before that, it, you're looking at, like, draft picks, like Eli Manning, John Elway. It's a very rare occurrence. So I think Deshaun taking that player empowerment to his own and trying to navigate the field that he's trying to navigate right now and not worrying about the PR crisis that happens, not worrying about, you know, fans calling him selfish. He's saying, this is my career. And, of course, there's the iconic clip of J.J. Watt saying, I'm sorry we wasted a year of your career. Deshaun Watson saying, that's never going to happen again. And that's all that this is about. So power to him and – Let's hope he keeps the pushing. Right. And, and Parker, I wanted to kind of follow up. Do you feel like race plays a, a major role in this and how Deshaun Watson is being treated? I don't know if race plays a role in the way the Texans are treating him, but I know I feel like it plays a role in some of the decisions they made around everything else, like not giving Eric Bannamy an interview off the bat, not yeah. hiring the general managers that Deshaun Watson and the consulting group that the Texans brought in we're asking for Jack Easterby, who's kind of running the operation over at the Houston Texans. But Monty Jones has kind of makes this point. He started off as the team chaplain and then kind of parlayed that into being head of football operations. And, you know, it's kind of weird to see someone that was, you know, supposed to be prayer and religious uh, leader for your team somehow turn into the entire base of operations. And 
a lot of the moves that they're making, I can I definitely see why Deshaun Watson's upset. The general manager they brought in from the New England Patriots organization is the same organization that brought in Bill O'Brien, who traded DeAndre Hopkins, who traded Jadavion Clowney, who traded for Laramie Tunsil and has left the Texans in the position they're in now. So I completely understand why he would be so hesitant to try to stay there. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Personally, I would want to see him go to the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, that's not to be biased, you know, but I know they probably don't have the cap, you know, for Deshaun Watson. But, you know, Big Ben, he's getting older. He's 38. I feel like it's it's about that time for him to retire. He basically already solidified his legacy in the NFL and, and, and through the Steelers organization. You know, he has two Super Bowl rings. He's a six-time pro bowler. And I just feel like the backup quarterbacks, you know, Mason Rudolph and Joshua Dobbs, I don't really see them leading this Steelers team at all. Um, I know they just signed Dwayne Haskins, which is a very good quarterback, but he only signed a, a one-year contract. So the Steelers quarterback situation is still in the air right now, and I definitely would want to see Deshaun Watson go to the Steelers, but, you know, that might not happen. I could also see him going to the Patriots with Cam Newton leaving. I feel like that'll be a good organization for him to be at, but we shall definitely see. There should be no shortage of teams calling the Texans about Deshaun Watson. He's a top-five quarterback, and there's – probably only about five or six teams that really should should not be considering this at all. Yeah. Um, Deshaun Watson is very special, and it's so hard to have a year like he had. 4,800 passing yards, 33 touchdowns, seven interceptions, and to only have four wins, that speaks to a huge level of incompetency by an organization to waste right. a season. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, it was six head coaches hired – all white. This has been the same thing that's been happening 30, 40 years. I mean, this is the reoccurring issue. Mr. Steele, what do you think needs to happen for this to change? The, the I know the Rooney Rule made some changes, but what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, they're running out of excuses and they're running out of, of patches and programs and initiatives and things like that. I mean, there is no one left to blame for all this but the owners. You can't even blame Roger Goodell, which, you know, he's deserved a mountain of the criticism of a lot of things, including the direction of our hiring in, in past years. But he and the league office have done all the things that they need to do, including pointing out to the owners why this is important, why they're wrong, why hiring black coaches and other non-white coaches is, is the right thing to do, the effect that it has on the league and its image, just the amount of talent that's being wasted year after year, the sort of bad feelings that are being, you know, that, that are being generated among the black people in the league, the other executives, the other assistant coaches, the fans, the players. I think everybody's aware of that now. The owners are the ones who are being the most hard-headed about it. I don't know if there's any single owner out there who has the sort of status and the will and the, 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 the moral standing to buck up against this because it really would only take one or two, maybe three, to just make this a regular part of their decision making. But for year after year to be none is just unacceptable. And yeah, you do really start to wonder what it's really going to take uh, because I think that's where everybody is right now. They feel like they've just hit a wall now you know, they've done, the people who are being wronged have done everything they possibly can to try to make things right. The people who are doing the wrong aren't doing anything about it. You know, you can't look at how the Eagles made their decisions, how the Texans made their decisions. Just, you just go down the list of teams. And for most of those highs, you cannot justify the people who they allowed to jump the line and say, 
okay, we're going to take you over this person, that person, the other person who we've told you need to go down this list. You need to have these credentials. You need to pay these dues and then take a bunch of people who have never paid those dues. Right. And, you know, a lot of the focus gets put on Eric Bieniemy, who's uh, offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs. And rightfully so. He's done an amazing job leading one of the best offenses in the NFL. But the narrative has been you need to be an offensive play caller. You need to be a quarterback-minded coach. There's another offensive coordinator in the championship week that isn't going to be offered a head coaching job, and that's Byron Lefowitz, who's a former quarterback. There's absolutely no excuse for the lines that have been crossed being crossed. The last black head coach that was hired was Brian Flores for the Miami Dolphins. He's done an amazing job turning that organization around, especially when it looked like they were going nowhere but downhill. And it seems to be that those are the only jobs that black coaches get. The complete retooling, rebuilding process, and jobs that, frankly, they're likely to get fired from because you're not going to be able to turn those situations around. Flores did an incredible job in just two years with the Dolphins, but we see it time and time again. We saw Steve Wilkes with the Arizona Cardinals get fired after one season because of the incompetency of the franchise. Black coaches aren't given the same opportunities, and they're definitely not given the opportunities that unproven white coaches have. We saw the Jacksonville Jaguars, who need a quarterback-minded coach because they're probably taking Trevor Lawrence. They want to get him acclimated to the pro game, and they took Urban Meyer, who's not acclimated to the pro game. So there's just a lot there that doesn't add up when you look at the list of things that NFL teams and NFL general managers and administration say that they want from a coach. Hey, I agree. I actually want to switch topics over to baseball. We know that the legendary Hank Aaron just passed away. I just wanted to just get you all's input on what he meant to you all, not only as just African-Americans, but with us being in the sports industry. See this... uh... On camera, of course, this is mostly audio. Holding up a Hank Aaron card that's uh, laminated that I got when I was getting out of college, actually. He was my favorite player growing up. And as I grew to sort of watch him as he broke Babe Ruth's record, he became my favorite athlete, period, of any sport, and not just because of, you know, his athletic accomplishments. I, I wonder sometimes, and I believe me, I don't want you guys to take this the wrong way, I wonder if generations past the time that I grew up really understand what it was like, what he went through to break Babe Ruth's record, or if you understand the, the, the enormity of the accomplishment of what, of what Babe Ruth, you think of what Babe Ruth means to baseball and to American culture and to just the, the, the entire world in general right now. It was probably 50 times that back in the 70s when he was just the undisputed king of, of, of all sports. His, his name was like an, an, an adjective for greatness throughout, you know, this culture. And here's this black man about to break his record. And just the, the level of hatred is, it's really honestly un, un, unimaginable. You think of really any athlete today or really since then, they've never went through what Hank Aaron went through. People really literally sent him death threats every day. He had to get FBI protection, police guard security all the time for himself, for his family. Uh, he was getting bags and bags of mail. People were threatening him all the time. And it was all because people did not believe that a black man had the right to take over an icon's record. And for that, you know, that, that's the sort of thing that just was in, embedded in me from an early age. And he was a big part of what steered me toward doing this for a living. 
and it pretty much, you know, altered forever my outlook towards sports, toward us in sports, towards just the, 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 pic, the big picture in general and what I wanted my role in it to be. And the fact that for the rest of his life, he devoted all his time to making sure that injustices like what he went through would never be suffered by anybody else again, it, it elevates him to the, the very peak of every athlete of my lifetime. And that includes Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan and, and just, just everybody. He's just above and beyond them all. He's like literally on the mountaintop of athletes that I've admired in my life. And so it's been a, it's been a difficult day for me as, you know, seeing some one of my childhood uh, idols go, but he epitomized for me how sports and what blackness should be in sports and in this culture. Uh, right. When we talk about Hank Aaron, we're talking about someone who obviously broke uh, so many barriers RBI leader still, for m most people, they still consider him the home run leader. I know Barry Bonds broke the record. I'm not going to get into that right now. But Hank Aaron's greatness and his level of appreciation for the game, that's something that is never going to be forgotten. And my dad told me about, after hearing of the news, he told me about the time he drove from Chicago to Atlanta to watch Hank Aaron break Babe Ruth's record. And you know, it's just that kind of devotion that he brought out out of a lot of the, no offense to Mr. Steele, but the older black generation is, he was that hero, he was that icon, and he obviously broke the barriers for the sport of baseball and kind of just showed us the sky's the limit and lost a great man. ESPN did a great job of covering some of the racism that Hank Aaron endured, including the letters that were written uh, before he broke the record to him the thousands and thousands of hate mail that he got so and having to endure all that and still being able to accomplish that's the epitome of blackness in america unfortunately and but it's also the epitome of greatness hank aaron definitely displayed that in its full form yeah i agree i know like for me like just as a college student in atlanta at a hbcu and living right across the street from where he hit his 715 home run it was, it was amazing to see, you know, the different races that were just surrounding his statue this morning. It was, it was amazing to see the lasting impact that he made, not only on the game of baseball, but just in the world in general. And, you know, just everything that he endured and overcame. And I, I just feel like he was such an inspiration to me as, a, as an African-American man. He actually inspired me to play the game of baseball in high school, even though I wasn't really that good at it, you know. But, you know, Hank Aaron was definitely inspiration to us all. And, I'm grateful that we got to witness such greatness and all the times that he has played. But for our final topic, we know that some of us have already started school. Some of us are about to start school in a week or so. I wanted to just ask you all, what are some tips to get through this spring semester? For the spring semester, I would say, honestly, and I know this is so cliche, but time management is the biggest thing you can accomplish, especially yeah. for some of us who are graduating. Um, and just, you know, students overall who are trying to, like, get to the end of the school year. Uh, time management is the biggest thing that you, you have to conquer after time management. I think take time for yourself. Of course, mental health is very important. I don't agree with all-nighters unless you actually have to do it. I don't yeah. agree with, like, overworking, overpushing yourself. I think it's very important that, you know, you take time for yourself and you unwind and relax before, you know, you get 
back into the pressures that we know is school and you know the average semester. If you're like me and you love being at home and do not want to go back to campus at all, be sure to take a couple naps, you know, go downstairs, do what you do, just relax. And yes, those are my biggest things. Definitely. What do you think, Parker? Man, I've had senioritis since freshman year. Um, <laughs> and now that it's like actually here, it's, it's such a weird feeling. Uh, this is my last semester at Morehouse and I will not be at Morehouse and you know that makes me sad a little bit but like Jayla said just take time for yourself and make sure that you know what your goals are at the end of the day and make sure you like especially for the seniors out there make sure you finish I'm not going to even say finish strong because I'm not entirely positive that I will I am just saying that you know keep it pushing make sure you get that degree Make sure you accomplish the goals that you're trying to accomplish and, you know, ba- balancing everything that we have to balance. You know, we have uh, the Road and Fellowship, which is a great opportunity and a lot of fun things that we get to do. But it's also a lot of work, obviously. So just trying to balance everything and making sure that you do have time for yourself. Definitely. I appreciate that, man. Well, thanks for listening to the Road and Fellows podcast. This show is produced by Jayla Jones. Special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio content team. A big thanks to our special guest, Mr. David Steele, as well as for joining us today. I'm Ashton Edmonds, and I've been your host. Get all of our HBCU podcasts by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next time for another podcast episode, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports, culture, and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.